I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. This is really wonderful because we're sitting down with our um, all-time favorite Sequoia podcast guest for the third time, and uh, and what a way to wake up this morning! Mm-hmm. <laughs> what a way to start the day! It is very nice. We know quite nice. And we were just talking about how you can, you know, we've spent cumulatively two hours with Julia, and it's one of those relationships where you just feel like you. You 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 feels you like know home. somebody intimately. Yes, yeah. it feels like home. It feels like yeah. a very feels like you've known somebody forever. Julia, and, uh, we love you. <laughs> we do, we do, folks. Julia Samuel is joining us today. If you haven't listened to the episodes that she has been uh, with us in the past, drop everything. Go back and listen to them now. They're amazing. Uh, but we're we're extremely excited to be talking to you today, Julia, because you got a new book that uh, that. Uh, has recently been released over here in Canada, um, maybe even North America. I don't, I don't know what. Nice. I, I don't. Okay, both. Yeah. Uh, every family has a story, and I feel like we're gonna we're gonna like have some family time today. With and the uh, the strap line is how we inherit love and loss. Mm-hmm. So it's how we carry those family stories in us, both the positive, the loving, the connected, like we were talking about just now, being known is a definition of being loved, isn't it? And loss, all the things that get broken and separated. This is all all such a, uh, when when we spoke to you last, I believe, um, I believe my wife was was pregnant at the time. And, and now, and now um, I have, my daughter is eight, eight months old. And congratulations. That's thank such you. a wonderful thing. And we're having and we get to have so many conversations. Like we have so many we have so many conversations that where we are like where we're sharing uh, lots of stuff, like lots of vulnerabilities and 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 sharing vulnerabilities with our guests and our guests to us and and things that that they're going with through with their family or their illness and what that like what that how that affects their family dynamic. And I'm looking at life through like a much different lens and and I'm I'm thinking all the time about Ooh. about the way in which I love my daughter and how that will imprint onto her and 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 the effects that that will have when when I mean when we do when we do anything really but I was thinking about this specifically yesterday I was in the shower and she was she was outside the shower kind of like staring up at me just like sitting on the floor <laughs> and I was like and I was just talking to her and telling her that I love her and like laughing. And I was like, what? I, 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 fe- I just felt so joyous that this like, 
He's finally softening up. That this like finally starting to show some emotion. <laughs> For all these goddamn years, we thought he was a complete psychopath, and now look at him. Anyway, and and so when when you say, when you say inheriting inheriting love, I just I just kind of jump to this thought mm. of like, oh, I feel like I'm imparting that onto somebody right now, and and it's it's making me very happy. Mm. And I think love is that amazing reciprocal process, isn't it? In that she. You must have been given enough love to be able to trust to love and mm. sort of the kind of template of attachment of how you were loved as a, as a child and how you were in relationship as a child. <laughs> you are now carrying into your adulthood and carrying on in relationship with your daughter. So despite them saying that you were a psycho, <laughs> you probably aren't because we, one of the kind of important, so the, the book is eight case studies of multi-generation families. So some is four and five generations, some is three generations about what gets passed down from generation to generation. And it clearly you had, well, you tell me, do you think you were given that imprint for yourself about how to give and receive love in a secure, reliable, predictable way. Yeah, I think uh, I think I was, and we we recently we recently we uh, we talked to Gabra Mate on the Ooh. show, and very snazzy, and he 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 shrunk me a little bit, and <laughs> and it was very interesting, and and although the and although although that the the love was certainly there, he sort of he kind of picked at like at at how some of the sort of like tough love, not tough love. Um, well, well, how would you guys put that? Like the, um, I mean, tough love makes sense to me. I, I, I guess like that he went into this, he went into this piece. He asked me, um, you know, if you're, if a child is crying, um, should you pick them up or should you leave them? And I sort of said, Oh, I, I kind of, um, I see, I think I see some benefit in both. Like, of course you want to pick them up and you want to love them and make them feel comforted. But then at the same time that there's maybe this, this sort of like, if, that, if that's the, if that's always the thing that's doing that you're doing, then maybe there's, there's a lesson that's not being learned in some of that. And he kind of basically said like, that's probably exactly what your childhood was like. There was probably both of those scenarios. And I went and I asked my parents right afterwards and I said, you know, Dad, were you the one who ne who was always who, who said, uh, like you know, let him be, let him be, let him cry it out? And my mom would rush to me and pick me up. My parents were like, yeah, hundred percent. That was exactly <laughs> how it, that was exactly how it was. And yeah. I'm like, oh man, Gabor Mate just yeah. just reached into my past. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is it possible, Julia? Like through the the work that you've done, is it possible that people, in spite of their childhood, um end up like sort of doing mm. the opposite of mm. the type of um, like parenting and love that they received as a kid? Absolutely. I mean, nothing we know, and you know it from your friends and the stories you've heard, nothing is for certain or necessarily predictable. So the, the kind of um, cocktail, if you like, that makes how we respond in relationship is our genetic so our genetic predisposition, some people are born kind of more highly sensitive. Some people are born more robust, more resilient, just in their genes. And that in itself is an iterative process. So if you're born kind of in the middle ground and you have a secure enough attachment so that you have reliable, loving, predictable parents and having a kind of 
a cop and whatever it's called good cop bad cop isn't right. a bad way because you don't want someone just always always meeting every need because that gives you a template like all my needs are always going to be met all of my life and that doesn't mm. really prepare you mm-hmm. for, for life yeah. mm-hmm. so you have to learn how to self-regulate and self-soothe and kind of how you kind of trust enough in yourself and life and overcome difficulties as well mm. through your childhood and then the other part of it is what actually happens to you so that you know you could be having um with your predisposition and you could have those parents who are unreliable say avoidant to parents Mm -hmm. but you are born more on the robust side and then you could have a really amazing friendship at school or an incredible teacher or something you know a relationship that changes the pathway in yourself about how you can be in relationship right. and yeah. that will yeah. influence and shape you and the big thing in my book is that nothing is set in stone that you know uh we have this incredible neuroplasticity that allows us to change and the work you do on the podcast is giving people the content and the information to <laughs> let them know where they can head to that they can change mm-hmm. and, yeah, that, and- that reminds me of like the conversation we recently had about <laughs> Uh, the research going into attachment styles, yeah, and and how you know uh, we we typically have one or two attachment styles that sort of like innately kind of come with us based on the relationships that we had, but then the relationships that you build as you grow and and age can actually shift those attachment styles based on you know, whatever, you know, whatever, uh, however those relationships kind of showed up for you in your life. It's but- a, re- it's a really like amazing, I'm, I'm kind of seeing as we're, as we're, as this conversation starts to roll, how this conversation, our conversations in general with you, Julia, our conversation with Gabor Mate and our conversation with, um, a- her name is Angela Rowe. She's a re- uh, psychology researcher out of, um, uh, the university of Bristol and, how they're this is they're they're kind of like they're 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 starting to shape into this suite of episodes that are yeah. tackling this topic from a few different angles yeah. of like relationships, yeah. secure um, attachment, insecure attachment, like love. Guys, connection. I love I love hearing you talk about this because this has been my like therapy journey over the past couple of years. Because and and this is one of the reasons why I find therapy so valuable because. I felt like for you know 30 years of my life, I was walking around as this person who has been influenced or imprinted on by, you know, so many people throughout my past, um, the, you know, my relationships with my parents, the divorce that they went through, my mm. early sort of romantic relationships that I had, and all of these past influences um, sort of led me to show up in my current relationship in a way that I was totally unaware of prior to going to therapy. And then when you start to go to therapy, you start to like analyze your past in a way where you're like picking up on like, oh, this part of me in my relationship now is I can see very, very directly how it's attached to, you know, my relationship with my dad or my relationship with my mom. And um, Julia, when you talk about how we can change, how this isn't set in stone, um, I I feel like that's the most powerful thing for me about therapy is that I'm learning like, oh, I can be aware of when these different sort of past relationships show up and how I can, you know, take the things that maybe were protecting me at that time and and maybe let go of them or, you know, use them in, in different ways. And it's it's so much more empowering knowing that you can be in 
control of those feelings rather than letting them control you. Completely. And, you know, that's your, as your lived experience of recognizing how you're influenced by the past and you're aware of what that is, that awareness in itself is the portal to change. And the and the piece I would add is that I think there's an idea in attachment theory that we have a multiplicity of responses to different people. So that with you, I have a secure attachment. I have fun with you. I trust you. I can feel I can be fully myself for some extraordinary reason. I've never met you. I'm a grandmother, an old bag, and we have a thing that works. (laughs) (laughs) And yet I could have a conversation with somebody else where I'm quite tight, Mm. where I kind of have to work really hard to kind of think about how I'm going to respond. And because I'm a bit nervous, my capacity to be creative and remember closes down a bit. Mm. So I'm my window of what I'm transmitting narrows. And so the person receiving me doesn't get so much. Mm. And so then there's this awful kind of clunkiness between us. I mean, I had that, I went out last night and there was somebody I was talking to and it just got clunky and it got narrower, narrower. Mm. You know, and I'm a blooming therapist. I should know how to open people's, But some sometimes they do something to me because of my past. They probably unconsciously remind me of a complicated, difficult, whatever it is, relationship. So I think we I think in the past we've always had these very rigid views, secure attachment, insecure, ambivalent, avoidant, all of that. And actually I think there are lots of versions of that with different mm. people. Something that I that I you know, I, and I feel like this kind of sets this up really well. Um that I'd love to talk about. And in particular, it has to do directly with the book. So again, the book, uh, folks, Every Family Has a Story. It's available now uh, in Canada. Go get it. Um, We have all of Julia's past books here. Big fans of the books. Um, I know that a big part of this book is kind of exploring how families um, manage and deal with adversity. And um, one of the things that you you say in the book is that, you know, some families seem to thrive when it comes to adversity. Some families seem to fragment. Mm. And, mm-hmm. uh, I'm wondering what that is because, because when I, when I read that, when I first read that, I was like, Hmm, what's, what's my family? Like how, how do we react to adversity? And in the last few years, there has been some like true adversity within my family. And in, in the early stages of that, it seemed like there was a lot of fragmentation in the family. There was a lot of um, there was a lot of Putting feelings of of like resentment. There was a lot of feelings of anger. Um, a lot of confusion. The dust settled. A couple of years passed. Present day today, you know, especially at, right now we're leading up to Christmas. Christmas is right around the corner. Um, we're gonna have our Christmas gathering with the entire family together. And there's like, there's nothing but love. And it seems like we're, we're almost stronger after having gone through this really tough time through our family. And I was like, Oh wow. Like I, I guess our family is one of those families that seems to thrive after going through a a bout of adversity. And in retrospect, we always have kind of been that family. And I, I don't think, I think before this and before 
you know, before your book and, and before thinking about it this way, I would have assumed that adversity when it comes to family, when it comes to like, you know, interpersonal family dynamics, when you put a wedge in there, oftentimes it's, it's more often than not, it's going to fragment. And so I'm kind of wondering like, what is, what's, what's at play there? Why do some families thrive in adversity? Why do some families not at all? I mean, that is, it's a big question. And in, and in some ways, each of the eight case studies, you know, somewhere there was a suicide, somewhere there was a woman who's in Auschwitz, um, a gay couple adopting. There's a different answer because some of these things are very subjective. But if mm. I kind of broaden it out for people that are listening, I think families move on a spectrum of functional and dysfunctional depending on what's happening internally so what's happening to somebody emotionally and external events and so if I take your family as a micro often when there is something terrible that happens to us externally that we face a lot of adversity we don't become our best selves we're frightened so all our neural networks go on fire Ooh. we're angry the world seems unsafe, unpredictable, and you kind of do either attack each other or pull apart. The peace, and you haven't said this, the peace, it's never about the fight or the rupture in families where they um, survive and thrive through adversity. It's their capacity to repair after a fight. Yes. So that you have this ability to let the dust settle so that you've all calmed down and in some way come back together. And you, may, your family may not have done this, but in some way f- kind of work out what is it we were upset about, where are we now and what really matters to us. And in the end, what matters to us most is that we are a family that pull together yeah, and yeah. that we are part of, we're a team for each other not against each other when to celebrate with, to support, you know, through hard times to have fun with. And that that at the end is at the core, you know, love at the end is at the, is at the heart of, of um, good, strong family. It's it's funny. It's funny you say that. I just want to add this. It's funny you say that because one of the other things that it made me think about was how with family, at least in, in my, in my personal life. And and I think this is probably quite relatable to a lot of people. Like I know it is for you. Um, and definitely for you as well. It's, it's funny that we can come back to that place of peace when it seems like family tend to be the people in our lives that we get the most fucking exasperated with. Mm. Where we love most, we, where we love most, we hate most and fight most and make our deepest mistakes. Right. Yeah, I'm yeah. I'm curious though because like my family dynamic is in I I guess is the total opposite of mm. what Jared just described. Like my parents got divorced <laughs> when I was 15, and um it was it was messy, it was physical, and after you know 18 years, my parents I couldn't imagine them in the same room together. Like I I don't even they've never spoken since the end of the divorce. And so, although the, can I, al- can I although, pause you there, th- sure. just, th- just sure. to add in that what the research shows is it isn't the divorce that harms children or parents that, that split, it's the level of parental conflict. 
Yeah. And mm. whether that is like on, on sort of death content, that that is very damaging. Mm. That's that's a thing that I've only been starting to come to realize through therapy because for a long time I just looked at my parents' divorce as, oh, they got divorced just like, you know, Johnny's parents are just right. like Carl's parents or whatever. Like divorce is divorce. Yeah, right. And and but Carl's then, parents got divorced. <laughs> so, so uh, I, I, I don't think any of us know anyone named Carl. <laughs> no, no, I was trying to be I was trying to name somebody that I didn't know. But um but uh, no one knows Carl. But the the, the, the but someone thing, knows Carl whose parents divorced, right? Oh, there is a Carl whose parents divorced, because there has to be. There's lots of Carls. And Carl, if you're listening, I feel you, buddy. Uh, but uh <laughs> but, uh, I, I, I wanted to ask like I, i'm curious um in a situation like mine where families fragment what are the things that someone like me should be aware of in terms of like what the um negative imprinting effects can be long term so that i can try to be aware of or people that are in my position can try to be aware of to understand how a traumatic event like that can show up in your life and your future relationships. Mm. I mean, I think what, so all of you, what you learn how to be in relationship is what your parents have modeled so that it will be the imprint in you. And some of the, and if you get the sort of section of families that stay dysfunctional rather than the ones which are the most families that move along it, depending on what's going on, but there are that kind of maybe 10% of families that are really properly dysfunctional, the, the, the aspects of them that make them dysfunctional is the inability to communicate and listen. So there isn't open communication. There's a kind of conflict about who is right and who is wrong. There is this inability to be prepared to allow difference. You know, so in families that are functional, you can allow different views, strong feelings, and um, a lot of complexity, and you can hold it. In families that are dysfunctional, the minute you have a view, you're wrong and you're out and you're kind of uh, the level of connection is is blown apart. Mm. And there isn't intentional goodwill. There's intentional bad will. Um, and there is no trust. So those are the kind of underpinning things. That, so the intention is to kind of over to to do harm, I think. And that mm. it, and it, in what we said already, What's so painful is that these strong feelings come from love. You know, where you hate most and want to do harm is where you've hurt most. Mm. And so indifference is the opposite of love. So in some way, you know, what re they, there is a lot of, of um, connection and hate holds you in contact with the other person and it kind of ruminates in your mind. So it's not like you're kind of... Uh, living your life, hating your family, they actually, you know, hate is a heavy burden to carry and con contaminates every feeling that you have and your other relationship. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there, it always felt like there was either from one side or the other, there was either a fight to, quote, win the divorce or yeah. not, not lose the divorce. So there was this, like, almost like competition. And 
Um, I don't think my parents would have seen it that way, but from my perspective as, as the kid, that's what it looked like. And it was, do you so, see that in your relationship now that if you have conflict, you want to win or lose, or I, I mean, win and not lose. I don't, I don't think so. Uh, I think in spite of my parents' relationship in the sense that, um, I don't think it shows up in my romantic relationship. I think the guys would say that like, there are times when I feel like I have to be right. Um, and I'll, sure. uh, I'll like passionately argue a point and won't be willing to to let go of it and i can probably tie that back to my parents divorce the one thing i felt like i, I feel learned, like that was with you pre-divorce having known you since i was 10 yeah maybe i mean that could be like a competitive thing from yeah. sports too or yeah. or or it could have been from my parents fighting before they got right. divorced yeah. you know yeah, like right, i right. i didn't have my parents model love for me um well, like through my entire childhood, like I can't remember seeing them hug each other or kiss or like show romantic expression for one another. Um, but the the thing that I found interesting and having a an identical it's amazing twin, you're in a loving relationship. By the way, you have done well. <laughs> Thanks. I I feel like it Good hasn't job, been man. without challenges through, and especially in like previous romantic relationships, like learning some of these things. Um, I feel bad for partners in past relationships that like. You know, we're almost like my sort of, for lack of a better way to frame it, like an experimental place to try to work some of these things out. Um, but Can I interrupt what, you once yeah. more, one more time? Yeah, yeah. One of the things that I would imagine that has influenced your capacity to grow and trust despite your upbringing would be the friendship you, the three of you have, that you've made a trusting, loving family, the three 100%. of you. So that gave you... Each of you an imprint. Oh, this is what a loving mm -hmm. relationship can be like, and that it's yeah. playful and fun, and you can have fights, and you can still love each other. I mean, we've talked about this a lot. That that I think, um, and Taylor and I, particularly because we we grew up together when we were young, have talked about how like. Are our you feeling left out is... now, Jeremy? <laughs> no, not at all. Yeah, I mean, this is this is daily. This is a daily. I, I'm daily da reminded daily that uh, I came in late. We, but we've, we've talked about how like our 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 friendship is, is like like it's more familial than our family relationships, and yeah. so chosen family. We're yeah, we're family. more family than we are. Yeah. Friends, but I just want to come back to the the point that okay, I wanted to make about um, my parents is that uh, having a twin brother and going through the divorce together, we oftentimes would talk about, you know, what one parent was saying versus what the other parent was saying. And I think something that we learned through that process is that it was nuanced. Like we, we couldn't take whatever my mom said 100% to be true or what my dad said to be 100% true. And so we had to always work to try to find the truth in what we were hearing between them. And so um, I think that that sort of opened my eyes to the nuance in relationships. And so I, I, I try to be aware and definitely more through going to therapy about times when I'm in a, in a having conflict with my partner and when I think I'm right, but also trying to be aware of like where I'm actually wrong because I think that is the most challenging thing when you're you're so like sure that the way that you're thinking is the right way to think about it but obviously there's conflict so it, you can't be entirely right so then I try to like step back and go all right if this is my parents I'm being one of them right now how do I be less of Ooh. this um 
which is mm. I don't know and, if and that's that positive comes, or negative. <laughs> and but that's a really so people listening who kind of are with their families that wanting a tool to enable them to bridge those difficulties is that capacity to in the moment of the conflict to be able to zoom out to step back and kind of take a broader perspective and in doing that when you go back in a you're calmer so you may just go out and get a glass of water and go okay slow down this reminds me of and then when you go back in you have much more of your hippocampus and your kind of heart, if you like, online to be able to respond, to recognize that it's very rarely black and white. You know, mm-hmm. as you say, it's nuanced. It's, it's, it isn't winning and losing often in these things. And as you said, it's very rarely about what's going on in that moment. Mm. It is not emptying the dishwasher. Mm. No. Yeah. And, um, and something I'm, and Brian, you tell me if you think that I'm, I think that you'd think I'm right in this, but if I'm if you think I'm wrong, then let me know. And I'm be curious to, to know And I'll punch um, you and then we'll have a fight. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very curious to know what you think about this, Julia, is is um is uh, although there was definitely fragmentation in your family with the divorce of the whole like fragmentation of the whole, um of all the pieces, th- then there was like a there there was ultimately uh, from my pers- from the outside perspective, watching it all happen, there seemed there was a thriving of the three of you, your brother and your mom mm, for sure. Where like your mom was left in a tough spot um, in a whole bunch of different ways. And you guys all coalesced and formed a really, really strong bond um, that I think you guys really thrived in and helped each other in like really big ways. So there was kind of this, this like explosion and then like, like reforming of hundred uh, percent my family my, in a thriving way. My relationship with my mom got way better though. There are things that I'm only realizing now that, so like my mom, um, as I think both of you guys know, holds on to a lot of grief and carries that with her. And it, and it, I think results in her oftentimes being an angry person. And she sacrificed like so much for my brother and I that I, I think there's a little bit of resentment, not towards like making the sacrifice for your kids, but I'm like, my mom has never prioritized herself. There was like maybe one year before she got cancer that she started to prioritize herself. And she was probably the happiest that Mm -hmm. year that she's ever been. Mm -hmm. And I think because she, um, was that when we went to Peru? Yeah. And just, just before then, like those first few years. And when she went to China. Right, 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 right. And so, um, but then I noticed that like one thing I talk a lot about in therapy is people pleasing. Like I'm oftentimes thinking about how somebody will feel and how I can soften the sort of blow of having a, a tough conversation or things like that. And I, I really feel like that comes from my mom. Not, I don't think that she was a people pleaser to other people, but I think she was that way to my brother and I trying to Ooh. make the best of a tough situation. And so like, even when people think that they're doing things for the right reason, if it's not in the best interest of themselves, and I don't mean that like selfishly, I mean that in a way that like, if you're not, understanding how to meet your own needs, then it's impossible for you to show up in a relationship in a healthy mm. way. I, I, I think, I don't know, Julia is, does that sound true? You have more experience than I do. I mean, 
I think it's so complicated because when you're in the crisis, really the best you can do is get up every day and function the best you can. And that when you're in a kind of heightened state of a crisis, everything feels so urgent because it's like this alarm bell going on. So this idea that you could go off and go for a walk and a talk with a friend, just it's too anxiety provoking. Um, and so I think sometimes where I, you know, we know much more now and Gabor Mate will have talked about the polyvagal system about how you, what I talk about with clients is that when you're in a very heightened state and if you have a prolonged crisis, that heightened state continues. So there was a case study of the Rossi family where the father um, shot himself and the, the mother was left with very little money and three young children and had very little support. This was 40 years ago. And how the trauma was still living in the family 40 years later. And I think even if she was um, born, I mean, working, if that happened in 2022, the thought of like giving yourself self-care in the middle of a crisis would be too big an ask. Mm. But I think what would have made a difference <laughs> and what they did with me is that they recognised that the trauma affected everybody and that they could do physical things to um, reduce the level of the fear. Mm. And But that you can't kind of do it straight away. Has that answered your question? Yeah. I'm not sure it has. I, well, yeah. I mean, to that point, one thing that I that I was kind of hoping to dive into in this conversation, and and maybe this, maybe will, uh, maybe this is sort of in line with that, or or maybe it's going in a completely different direction. But talking about like the small changes that can have really large impacts on on relationships and and families, and I know that in the book you you cover um, these twelve touchstones for family well being. Um, I, I mean, really good. By yeah, the way. yeah. I, I mean, I'd love to hear those. Um, and, and you know, if 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 you're not, if you don't want to go through all of them, that that that's fine. But maybe some some key ones that stick out to you that you think would be really valuable for for our listeners. Um, what what are these touchstones for for family well being? So I think people can kind of do their own. I did twelve touchstones, which were attitudes and ways of being and behaviors that allow you to kind of navigate the ups and downs and complexities of life as a family so that you can on the whole pull together. And the idea of them is, for instance, so one of them is to fight productively, like we've talked about, this idea mm. that if when you love each other, you are always going to have a fight. There is no family that doesn't fight because you will always disagree and there'll be small stuff and there's big stuff. But it's that capacity to to repair after a fight and also make sense of the fight is really important. Mm. If if you kind of notice there's a lot of tension in the family, one of the ways of looking at it is through the lens of like being five times more positive response to people to everyone negative. And if you're like leading up to Christmas, it can be like, you're always late, get in the car. So it's five <laughs> negative ones even before they've left the front door. And so you kind mm. of using that not as a stick to beat yourself with, but as a way of kind of checking like, oh, why are my children like really hating me right now? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and um I think another one is is really about is there's two big other I mean, they're all important, but I think two big ones are 
power, power in families, who holds the power? Like I was trying to work out between the three of you, who holds the power or where does the power move? And it does feel like you have different roles within the triumvirate, if you like, but you, on the whole, hold the power collaboratively mm. so that it's not top-down power or bottom-up power. It is power between you that you share because you listen to each other. And that's the other big thing is communication. favorite one-hit wonder or that overpriced toy your parents would never let you have or that tv show that no one else remembers because it was canceled way too soon now what if we could fix it i'm francesca ramsey and i'm delon grant and after 20 years of friendship we are now hosting a new nostalgia podcast called let me fix it each episode we'll dig into our favorite celebrities shows and brands of yesteryear and then imagine what it would take to repackage them for relevance today think of our show as an intervention but with way less stakes. So subscribe to Let Me Fix It wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Is that um, absolutely necessary for like the longevity, like the health and longevity of, of any relationship, like a shared power or p- can power be concentrated in, in, Taylor's wondering. Taylor wants, wants more power. Yeah, he wants to <laughs> hold it. <laughs> how do I wield it? <laughs> this is how we take it from you. <laughs> um, and well, also, the- can there be a power bottom? <laughs> oh, oh, my God, <laughs> oh my God, bro! Oh my God. So how you so how you three manage tension and conflict is taking the piss out of each other, right? So that you yeah. so the minute you do that, you kind of soften and expand who holds power. Mm. Whereas if you kind of were up against each other, then 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 there's this narrowing of connection and this need to overcome each other. But when you laugh with each other and there is a kind of empathy and a kind of love in that, isn't there? That laughter is, it goes to the neural networks in your brain of where love is. Mm -hmm. Because it's it's the thing that you can't really be anxious and laugh at the same time, fully laugh. You can go, (laughs) but you can't really, (laughs) you can't really laugh. But I, you know, I think it's one of the things I talked about in the touchstones in collaborative power is obviously you have young children. There are things that is top down power, like don't put your hand on the radiator or, you know, we're going to do this. So giving children too much power, which I think can happen now is uneasy and difficult for children because they haven't got the the minds and the memory and the information to make good decisions. So um they can't wield seems, it like my guy can. <laughs> <laughs> no. But I think you can include children in things like mum and I were thinking about for Christmas what we're going to do is and the day's going to look like this so that they feel like they have mm. a mm-hmm. a part to play and are included in it. Right. You mm. know um but if you say, to, I, you know, one of the big discussions is schools. And I don't think children have enough knowledge to really know which school, but they need to be included in the decision making of the school. Mm. I mean, that's, I'd cut that from the pod. It's a bit too detailed. <laughs> I, 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 um, I like that point, too, because I think of when there was this moment when I was playing hockey growing up and um, I it was my brother and I's first year playing hockey and they didn't know that. Can I we... pause you a second, by yeah. the way? I, I'm a yeah. twin. Um, 
but having your twin that you could reflect with and that you had that capacity for self-reflection in reflecting with each other was your probably your biggest um, protective factor because otherwise you'd have been like is mum right is dad right but having someone who is absolutely the same age as you and hearing the same as you kind of stopped you feeling like you were going mad you know what's funny is I haven't thought um, consciously about the importance of that. Like, I, like to me, my brother has always been my most important relationship in my in my life, and he never comes up in therapy. I, I never because talk it's straightforward. Yeah, it's like such a secure relationship that um, I don't. I and it, and it's funny because I almost, in a way, think when I'm when I'm in therapy and I'm working through past trauma, I oftentimes think of myself of being there on my own. Um, even though I know that like when I consciously think of it, like there was, there was so much security in that. And, and I think that that is, that's a really interesting point that you bring that up because I feel like now thinking about it, that it probably has modeled a healthy relationship. I mean, a really strong way that countered the, the negativity that I was experiencing. Um, I think we underestimate the importance and the imprint of siblings good and bad mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i i wanted to speaking of christmas i i was just thinking of this random thought the other day and i was really curious to ask you about this um i'm curious about like the the uh the story that we tell kids about santa and yeah, then the lies. the lies that we tell them <laughs> and then what? and then and then when we there's a new one there's a new lie i don't know if you don't know the new elf lie, on the shelf on the shelf uh, that's not that new, though, right? It's I mean, well, it's thing. like it's new compared to Santa, right? Like yeah, it's yeah. you know new in the last little bit. But right. it's, what's, uh, it, what's that? I don't know that. What's that? Um, so my my sister's big on this right now. I have two so young nephews. There's kids. three and three and five, and Elf on the Shelf. Um, and typically the parents will name them. So um, I forget the name of the Elf on the Shelf at my parents' house, but Carl. it's a little yeah, Carl. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and he's this little uh, you know like like one foot tall elf and the you know the game that the parents play is for the you know from december 1st to to christmas every morning the kids will wake up and this elf is a bit of a naughty elf and so he's like constantly playing tricks on the the people of the house um but he's been sent to the house as like a spy for santa essentially and he's keeping an eye on the kids to make sure that they are. Oh, um, that, I didn't know this level of that detail. They're, that they're be, yeah. that they're being good. So, like, you know, if you're doing, if you're going to be a little shit kid, El, El, you know, Carl's going to see it and he's, he's going to tell Santa. He's reporting back. Um, and it's, I mean, like, I see it, and I'm like, it reminds me of when I told my nephew, like, that his book, if he picks his nose and eats it, the boogers are going to eat. I remember that was in a yes, previous right. podcast. Yes, yes. <laughs> so, 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 you know, I'm seeing this, and I'm going, fuck, I feel like we're fucking these kids up, but it's also so fun. <laughs> To like, because there's rules like you're not allowed to touch Carl. Like you can't touch him, because uh, if you touch him, he'll lose his magic. So and the kids buy into it big time. But like you know, the other day he drew like, and he's in a different place every morning. every morning. He's in a different place. And and the other day, like the kids woke up and they had they had like with with like you know um, white whiteboard marker. They had they had glasses and a mustache drawn on their faces. And Carl did it while they were sleeping. <laughs> that little trickster, that little fucker. And and so so the kids are like, ah, oh, Carl, he got us. Like he got us. We can't, oh, but we can't touch him. And like so, the kids are like, you know. And so so the other day, my 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 nephew was having a bit of a, you know, he got a little bit lippy with with his mother, and I was there. 
And he was like, you can't tell me what to do. And, and Natasha just goes, look. And she just points at Carl. And he immediately turned, he immediately was like, switched. okay, okay. He switched. He was like, okay. I, I, I mean, yeah. I know I, I'm, I get what you're asking. Like, are you, are, are you basically going, are we like, is there something really like under the surface bad about like shifting this power over to this, like once a month <laughs> or once it like once, once a, a year, year yeah. like a well, I'm also wondering like, like, is there, <laughs> is, I mean, what is the impact of lying to our kids for yeah. 10 years of their lives? And then, and then having to tell them at some point yeah. that you've been like, how, and, and I, when I think back to, I'll preface this by saying like, when I think back to my relationship with Santa Claus growing up and, and my parents telling me the story of Santa, um, I remember probably around like being nine or 10 years old, maybe eight years old, starting mm -hmm. to not believe. Jeez, that's early in, eight. Wow. In Santa yeah, anymore. And, and I, I was like, even 21, though I, I think I thought like, <laughs> you're always I, a late developer. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought, I thought, um, you know, that maybe this isn't real, but I wanted to believe anyway. Yeah. And so I continued to like, probably played it till I was like 14 saying like, mm -hmm. Oh yeah, Santa's coming. Um, but at what <laughs> point, but like, no, no, I mean, I mean that genuinely like, like saying that oh, at Christmas, that oh, Santa, sure. like to my yeah, parents, right. sure, because they never had the conversation with me that like, like you turned Santa it, you was, turned it around on them. Uh, yeah, I mean, and not, you just started to not make really them feel was, nervous because you were like, you convinced them that you still fully thought it was more so the feeling. It was the feeling that I had around Christmas and loving the experience growing up as a kid right. and wanting to protect that and not believe that it was fabricated. Right, <laughs> Julia, how do we how do we tell kids that Santa's not real? <laughs> How do we ruin uh, Christmas? So, <laughs> <Or> do we? <laughs> well, I tell you what, what I'm thinking about, because I did that with my children. They, they were honestly 18 sitting on my bed with their with their stockings saying, thanks, Father Christmas, as I gave them mugs with fuck you on it and things like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> they all give each other rude mugs. Uh, um, I love that. <laughs> I was always quite weird, Mother. But, but so I think a fundamental in families is trust that we can trust each other and but i think there's trust over important truths like your dad has got a cancer diagnosis and he's not well and that you tell them the truth or mum and dad are, and are, you know we're getting divorced or mm. you know we are going broke so because children pick up if stuff's going wrong in the house whatever that is children will pick it up by the emotions that are that that they feel in within the home and they will tell themselves stories that will often blame themselves that are much more damaging than the truth however mm. hard the truth is mm. so in age-appropriate language children need the truth about all things but I also fundamentally believe and research backs this up that children need creativity and play and mm. magical thinking and this capacity to imagine and have this wonderful kind of a picture of of magic because Ooh. that is how they kind of grow and play and they can people and children have magical thinking and I think we as adults have magical thinking and that's an important part of how we have fun is being able to kind of tell ourselves and do so like going to watch a play is a lie right Ooh. but Ooh. we we suspend the reality in order to get into it um or television any any of it mm -hmm. so I don't think there's any harm in the kind of 
the story of Father Christmas as a fantasy, as a wonderful, fun thing. I have a tiny bit of a problem with the elf on the shelf. Mm-hmm. It pre- seems pretty manipulative to me. It does, yeah, right? I know, right? I know. It I absolutely didn't, I didn't know. So I just thought it was a, oh, the elf is in a different place every morning and like, whoa, how crazy is that? That'd I mean, maybe Natasha's turning up the dial of being like, uh, you know, I'll just turn him into a fucking yeah. like, like, I didn't know he was a spot. KGB. He's like the KGB of Santa and he's just here. Yeah. Just keeping an eye on things. I, I, to that, to that point, um, I know one of the other touchstones of, of family well-being is the importance of ritual. Um, and again, you know, this is, I, I think the timing of this is so great because, you know, we're, we're capping off this year with our final episode of 2022 with our favorite guest, Julia Samuel, but it's also at the Thank time of the know. year where, Christmas yeah. is like a week away. Um, yeah. And ritual, Christmas is a big ritual for a lot of families. Um, you know, the holidays in general, there's, you know, not just Christmas, Hanukkah, you've got uh, Kwanzaa. Um, and so I'm kind of curious about, you know, specifically to the book, how do you, how do you touch on ritual in the book? And, and what does that mean? Like the importance of ritual? What kind of rituals are we talking about? So I think as human beings, we, we are wired to like habit because habits um, help us feel safe. So we don't have to think every day, am I going to clean my teeth? But you just automatically have habits and good habits, I think, are a very important part of your kind of mental health and stability. And I see rituals as habits with soul so that they can be a very cohesive, containing, holding Um, set of behaviors that mark important phases, transitions, times in a family's day and their life. So it could be that on a Friday night, like if you're Jewish, you have a ritual of of dinner and prayers and candles that sort of marks the end of the week, it gathers together and feels very special. And that that then becomes this embodied experience that is in you that kind of stabilizes you, you know, Monday through to Friday. And I think Christmas can be that, although of course families can be very competitive over rituals when like somebody new is joining a family, um, you know, how you manage the rituals and there can be masses of power play around rituals of who's gonna get to choose what and who's gonna do what. I mean, when, so all my children are married and every new, in-law, daughter, one daughter, three sons-in-law, I would ask them to bring a ritual to Christmas. So they would bring what one of the rituals that they had. So we would expand our family rituals to include theirs. And I think that's a collaborative way of rituals. But I think, yeah, does that answer? Mm-hmm. I, I really, I really, I really enjoy that because I think, I think of, I think of, I, I'm, I'm always sort of, I'm always thinking about habits, uh, you know, forming good habits and trying to focus on, on sort of reinforcing them. And I like the, I like the way that you framed a ritual as a, as a habit with soul, because like I do a lot of things that, that are good, but they're not, I don't, I don't particularly put any sort of uh a soulful emphasis on it. But then when I, when I hear you frame it, it that he way, psychopathically <laughs> does it, it, it void yeah. of emotion. Yeah. And I get wonderful, <laughs> fact, uh, fully uh, objective results. Um, and, uh, but when you put it that way, I think of, 
I think of um, little things. I'm I'm not as in it now as I as I used to be. But when I was practicing yoga religiously, like there was a lot of ritual that went into every time that I would practice, and there was a a ton of of psychological benefit in that that went that definitely went beyond just the good habit of stretching. You know, it was like, it was, it, it went far beyond that. And I'm, um, I, it's sort of spiritual, isn't it? There's that, yeah. it's an expansion. So when you're not a robot doing something, but you're a human being that, you know, that everything about us is connected, connected with nature, with the universe, with each other, with ourselves. And so if we expand our connection by slowing down and marking it with a kind of moment. And for yoga, it might be a prayer. It might be when you, what's, what's that? Um, like a, when, play, you, like a, when you like hit the gong or hit the singing hit the, bowl. The, the yeah. singing bowl. You know, those that sound kind of resonates through your mm. body. And that feels a moment of spirituality or ritual that kind of marks, I'm going to do my practice now. So mm-hmm. it's a, and it's, through the senses sight sound touch and smell that that's embodied and so your your whole response automatically when you hear that you know you're going into your ritual you into your yoga practice and then you expand your capacity to do that because you've mm. um made the noise i'm, I'm, I'm wondering yeah absolutely and i'm wondering and i'm I'm, f- I'm feeling very motivated to reflect on a lot of the things that I do or that my partner and I do, or now that my partner and my daughter and I do and think like, what are some of the habits that we have that we could be more soulful or that maybe we are soulful and I just haven't really realized it yet that, and, and recognize like, what are the, what are these rituals or what could be these rituals that could provide? Cause I, I feel like it's a, it provides a significant amount of, um, of um i don't know what the word i'm looking for is here like equanimity or um, i think they feed your soul no they, yeah, they yeah. kind of extensive sense of and, and that's a kind of deep inner calm of yeah. peace yeah i imagine i mean that. one of the things i think is things like having a ritual to end your work day you know Ooh. so you're not kind of dragging your work day into your mm-hmm. kitchen and into your supper and into your evening that you you know, you may close your computer, you may go for a little walk outside, you may kind of make yourself a drink, you may play a piece <laughs> of music, and all of that would take five minutes, but you've kind of marked with a ritual the end of your day, so that's the beginning of your evening, that yeah, kind of thing. We we learned that during um, the pandemic and starting to work from home, um, I, I was finding that I was closing my laptop, going straight into a conversation with my my girlfriend and her family at the time because we stayed with them for like six months and, um, and I was, um, finding it very difficult to transition. And so I realized, started to realize through this that I needed transition time. So when I finished work, I would still take half an hour to shut off, decompress. And it was so much more helpful. I, I wonder if, um, I wonder if ritual is a, um, is a point of conflict for a lot of people. I know personally, like I feel a lot of, I feel this like really, um, uh, paradoxical feeling around Christmas time because I, I love the magic of Christmas, but I also feel incredibly stressed during Christmas time. And it comes from, you know, um, 
ex- expectations around gift giving, expectations around scheduling and planning. And, you know, you're trying to juggle what, uh, what 10 different people want and expect their day to be mm-hmm. like and be part of that, but also wanted mm-hmm. it to be reflect what you want. And so I find this time of year can be really stressful. I'm wondering like, it, how do we communicate effectively around rituals so that it's a shared experience and not, you know, one person's version of, of what they want to happen that you're, that you're not just a passenger in somebody else's ritual. Mm-hmm. Help Brian. Help Brian. <laughs> Well, I think it is this thing of allowing, of having the capacity to communicate, first of all, for everyone to name what they want so that you can allow everybody's ritual to be named and included mm-hmm. and do that with a kind of generosity that there is enough. We we have enough time. We are a lot of people, but there is capacity. So it's a place of abundance, not scarcity, I think, you know, because mm-hmm. if you're if you think of it as scarcity, it's like, I'm only going to have space for mine and I have to cut everybody else out. <laughs> so this idea of, of abundance and then kind of working out together with that sort of sense of self-compassion and compassion for the other in how you communicate. Let's see how much we can include. Like, what do we really mind about? What is, as a team of us, six of us, eight of us, whatever it is, is really important to us. What is it that we don't want to miss out on and what do we all want to have together? And there will often be, if you actually name it, things that everybody wants. Mm-hmm. It's What's surprising, your thing, Brian? It's surprising how <laughs> communication is like the answer to all yeah. of our what problems. What is your thing? Brian wants everyone to watch Love Actually on Christmas <laughs> Day. Well, actually, here, here's some communication. Did you get my gift yet? Do you, do you know what you're getting me this year? No, I'm not getting you a gift. Son of a bitch. <laughs> what? Son of a bitch. You know what? On, honestly, the relationships, um, for me, secure attachment style, like is not is feeling like I don't have to give someone a gift and that they know that I I, I love them. And it doesn't mean that I won't I I can't do something for them, but you know, like my brother and I have never gotten each other Christmas gifts. And it feels amazing for me knowing that I don't have to like go out and Prove try anything. to show yeah, yeah. and 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 Can you call really Kyla nice. and, and explain this dynamic? <laughs> well, I know. I mean, I don't feel this with Maddie. It's her birthday today. <laughs> and also it's uh, Christmas in 10 days. And, uh, and like, I think okay. it's, different. it's different in partnerships. My husband, who for I've sure, been married yeah. to for 42, yeah. 42 years, nearly 43, didn't give me a birthday card on my birthday this year. And I literally wanted to fucking kill him. I just <laughs> thought, come on. It's a birthday card. How yeah. hard can it be? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I couldn't imagine. Uh, I couldn't imagine doing that to Maddie. I feel like, and and not well, and not so much ever. that like she would be um, mad at me. She would be just incredibly disappointed. And like, and I, I hate that. that word disappointed. Don't you? It's so <laughs> it's kind so of heavy. toxic. It disappointed. Ooh. It's like, ugh. Oh, yeah, I'd much so rather heavy. she was cross. It's like the disappointment <laughs> yeah. is yes. so shaming. It's just like, yes. Yes. ugh. Why? Why is that though? Julie, like, is that is that for you? Is is that a like a personal thing? Like, it, because is it like easier for you personally to deal with anger, or or is that just like a a, a general thing? I think disappointment leaves you. If I'm the one that's disappointed the other, I'm very powerless. Mm-hmm. I somehow can't get in there. They've just made a decision. I'm disappointing and I've failed. Whereas if they're angry with me, there is a level of power that is released that feels like 
you really upset me and it feels like they care do you know what right, I mean? Right. And, and obviously I don't want them to kind of annihilate me with their words, but you can be angry without destroying someone mm. and name what you feel. And that gives me a place to go, okay, I can see I really pissed you off and I really am sorry I pissed mm. you off. And there, there's something too about anger being like a, a sort of in the heat of the moment reaction that like has a peak and it and it settles, whereas like yeah. disappointment feels like it's like a tally di- against di- your relationship. Disappointment yes. re- reminds yes. disappointment reminds me of jealousy. You know, it's like when I'm when I'm happy, I know that that happiness is fleeting. When I'm angry, I know that that angry isn't going to last. When I feel jealous, I feel like that is going to stick with me until I'm fucking dead, and it's never going to go away. And so when someone's disappointed, Jeremy, that you, is in it, in and of itself quite a big thing. Because why isn't jealousy passing through your system like happiness and anger? Well, it but see, this is the thing. It does. But but it feels in the forever. Moment. In the moment, it feels okay. like it's going yeah. to last. Okay. Like a yeah. canker sore. Yes, exactly. And, and, and disappointment to me is the same thing. Where it's like, when someone feels disappointed in me, it feels like, oh, this might be forever. And, and it's not, it's not, it's, it doesn't quite have the same... It doesn't quite have the same... Um, it doesn't I, move, that's what you're saying. Yeah, I think feelings yeah. that move through our systems are healthy because they release out of us and allow other feelings to come through. Mm. Something like disappointment is much more like concrete, mm-hmm. that it's a label that you're fixed and anchored down with and that there's no moving yeah. Yeah. There's no yeah. moving through and, disappointment. Yes, mm. and even after you have, you have overcome it or, or, or made up for it, that it's still like a scarlet letter yeah. that, that remains mm. like the, <clears throat> the memory of the disappointment, mm-hmm. that time that I disappointed you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. because you're never really going to remember that time I made you angry. Yeah. 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 The time, yeah. the time that you didn't get me a birthday card on my birthday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. A- anger, anger is like, is like, is like, like blasting through a pane of glass. Whereas, whereas disappointment or, or, you know, or jealousy is like, is like trying to run through waist deep mud. It's just like, yeah, oh, it I feels agree. slower. It feels yeah. much and, and also I think there's arduous. some contempt in it, which is really kind of yeah, yeah. acidic. Mm. By the way, my husband bought me a really expensive necklace, and that totally worked. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. I, I am so easily bought, I cannot tell you. I wasn't even cross for a second. I yeah. love the necklace. Job done. <laughs> well, <laughs> folks, uh, again, every family has a story. Uh, How we inherit love and loss. It's the uh, third book from Julia, and uh, and I highly suggest you go grab it. And if if you're not aware, the other two books, this too shall pass. An incredible book um, about you know change in life and and trying to move through change in a way that uh, that prospers you know hope and growth. Um, and finally, grief works. Um, you know, a book all about uh, how to manage grief and 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 loss. Uh, Julia, we are your biggest fans, and um, we are so 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 happy that you just somehow agree to come back on this show every time we ask, and we're not going to stop asking. I mean, it's it, I, I want to make this like an annual event. Um, thank you, Julia. If if you if you wouldn't mind, just take a moment, let people know where they can find you, where they can find your work how they can keep up with, with the amazing stuff that you do. Well, it's complete joy. It's like, not, it's not work doing this, is it? It's really fun and interesting. You know, you take me places that I don't know what I know, 
like talking about disappointment that it's full of contempt and it's like I hadn't really thought of it like that before but so that I learned too and I think that's mm. really powerful in conversations where we both kind of are engaged and learn together so that's fantastic so thank you and for people who can find me I'm on Instagram at Julia Samuel MBE and I've got a website www.juliasamuel.co.uk and I've got a podcast with my two psychotherapist daughters mm. called Therapy Works. So any of those places, I'd love you to come and find me. And of course, buy the book. This, um, I was going to say this too shall pass. Well, do buy that as well. <laughs> <laughs> but the one we're talking about today is Every Family Has a Story, How We Inherit Love and Loss, which mm. Penguin Canada have been very generous to publish. And I'm very pleased, very proud of it. Amazing. Well, thank you, Julia. We, uh, we, you. Look, we look forward to the next we time we get to sit down and, and talk with you. Thank you. This is always the best. It is always the best. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.